Before we continue in our worship through the preaching of God's word, I invite you to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, again, we thank you for the privilege together. We thank you for the truth of your word, for your mercy and grace that is extended to us, that you've lavished upon us in Christ, our Savior. And we ask this morning that you would hear our hearts. We come to confess where it is good for our souls. You teach us that our confession is right and proper and good for our Christian walk, for our sin that we struggle with, this side of glory, our sin that we wrestle with, our sin that um, so besets us from time to time in our Christian walk. It's an affront to you all the same. Although our relationship is a covenant, it is sealed in covenant through the blood of Christ, yet our sin is an offense to your holy name. And that intimacy is given distance when sin is apparent. So we come to confess it, that we may acknowledge our great need moment by moment for your grace. To wash us in you. To strengthen us, to encourage us, to embolden us, to grant us capacity to walk in righteousness, to know you more fully, to gain on you an intimacy that we might worship you well, that our lives might be hidden in Christ to the fullest degree, and that you might use us. You might use us as flaming lights for your glory in this world. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we're going to return to Acts chapter 21. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 8. We touched on verse 6 last week, but I'm going to try to uh, reiterate a little bit of just the emphasis there, the thrust, I believe, that's there, even though we're picking up Paul in his travels. And so we're kind of uh, not at this point in in these verses, we're not uh, hearing Paul thundering out the gospel. We're seeing him trudging through his ministry, the third leg of his ministry on his way back to Jerusalem, where he is sure to face much persecution. And he has found it to be true uh, all along the way. He has been warned time and time again uh, exactly what God has in store for him there. And so it's a language here in these few verses that we're having to to go back and wrap our minds around the reality of the journey, reality of the mission. This is the third leg of three missionary endeavors into the Gentile world. And so we're going to look at Paul, the relentless apostle. The title of this morning's sermon is Paul, the relentless apostle. I'm trying, I'm trying again to keep that descriptive language of Paul's ministry uh, in the forefront of our minds. And so if you'll look there with me, we're going to pick up in verse 6. Again, this is where he said, he said farewell to the brethren that he had found prior to their entire, and now he's moving on. And it says in verse 6 that they went aboard the ship, he and his uh, eight um, fellow Christians, and the other Christians returned to their homes. In verse 7, when we had finished the voice from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus. And after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day, 
On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now, the book of Acts, we need to again remind ourselves that this is a history lesson. The book of Acts is beautiful in that regard. It gives us the history of the church. And Paul, really, from chapter 13, almost chapter 13, we kind of uh, see Peter fade off the scene to some degree. And then Paul enters in center stage. And Paul, we see Paul center stage all the way to the end of the book. So Paul's an extremely central figure to the history of the church. And Paul is the instrument used by God to bring the gospel to the Gentile world. Remember what we learned at the very beginning of the book of Acts, how the gospel is going to go forth, right? And we're going to kind of see those, those circles, those concentric circles go out further and further like a, a petal that falls into the, into the pond and the ripple effect goes out. And now we see Paul in that third layer as the gospel comes from Jerusalem all the way out to the Gentile world. Paul is that vessel of that fulfillment of prophecy that we found right there in the very beginning of the book of Acts. And Acts is beautiful in that regard. It's kind of an instruction manual for all believers in every generation as we relate to the church, because what we see is the history of the church, how God has moved, how God has worked his sovereign will in carrying the gospel throughout space and time, how the gospel really begins to move from the small, obscure, few little people there in Jerusalem all the way out to the known world and continues to go forth in same manner, in like manner, and how these folks then relate to one another uh, as Christians gathered and bound together in the bond of Christ. And we see that lived out in example. And Paul's life reminds us that all of life is ministry. What we see here, we, we, had, we have the epistles, right? And they're beautiful and they're wonderful and they're full of theology. But what does Acts give us? Acts gives us theology with legs on it. It gives us theology lived out. Now we see Paul actually practice what he preaches. Isn't that, what you've, isn't that the old saying? Have you not heard that when you're little? I heard that all the time. Practice what you preach. Now, in some regards, you have to be careful with that because you better be preaching the right thing. But Paul is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while we see the beauty and power of it in Paul is this. We get to look at his life, right? You also, there's, a, there's the old sense you also may have heard. We might be the only Bible that people see. There are still in our time thousands of people groups, thousands of people groups that do not have written word of God. No access to it. But literally, in our context, in an ever-increasingly secular world, secular culture, you might be the only Bible people see. It's not a faraway thought. And when people watched Paul, they saw the gospel lived out. So it's not just his teaching left out there in a void. It's a man walking out exactly what he taught. He practiced what he preached. And that's the beautiful thing that we get to see about Paul's life. His life is a life poured out in gospel ministry to the glory of God. And he is that full example, a full, beautiful example 
of applied theology, applied gospel truth. So we see the example of his life. All of life is ministry. If you're here and you are a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, if Jesus Christ has ransomed you from death to life, if Jesus Christ has paid your sin debt in full and called you to himself as a son and daughter of God, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, your life at that moment of conversion becomes a life of ministry. There are different callings. We don't all have the same calling in terms of vocation. We're not all going to be elders in a local church. That is true. We're not all going to be frontline pioneer missionaries. That is true. But we will all be ministers of the gospel. If you're here and you are a Christian, you are a minister of the gospel. Now the question is simply this. Are you an obedient minister of the gospel? Are you a minister that is walking in disobedience? Are you a faithful ministry of the God, minister of the gospel? Are you a so-so kind of sometimes faithful ministry of the gospel? Depends on how you find faith. That's the question. We're all ministers of the gospel. We're called to obedience. God gives us our context of ministry. We're called to obedience. And we're called to give an account. And Paul, given that reality, Paul is a beautiful, beautiful example for us. He demonstrates for us that there's no substitute for conviction. I want to call your attention to that reality. The Christian life, the Christian ministry lives and dies on conviction. And Paul gives us a beautiful picture of that. He's a man of conviction. He was accused of many things. He was described in many ways, but he is no less a man of conviction. Nobody described him as a man claiming to be a Christian that had no conviction of the gospel. He walked the walk. He didn't merely talk the talk. He believed the gospel and just flat out lived it out. It's a living, breathing gospel truth. His life give evidence to it. And it's beautiful that we see him as, again, part of Acts here because Acts moves us in that way, doesn't it? Isn't that part of the real beauty of Acts? That it just moves us because it demonstrates to us. It gives us, uh, it gives us a lifestyle, a picture into what these men and women were doing with their lives. And it moves us because it gives us application that demonstrates the reality of Christian living. And Paul's front and center here. Paul's life is a living, breathing, beautiful, and challenging picture of abandonment to Christ. Abandonment to Christ until it gets tough. Until the road gets rocky. Until the world offers you something a little more appealing. No, abandonment to Christ at all costs. That's what we see in Paul. His lifestyle proved that he practiced what he preached. So let me give you a little application right up front. Pray that this would be true for you as well. Pray for one another that this will be true of us. I 
all life is ministry for the Christian. There's no Christian life without a life of ministry. All genuine Christians are ministering. All of us. The question is, are we ministering well? Paul gives us a wonderful example of a Christian who ministered well. And now remember, I want to bring you back with Paul to chapter 20, verses 23 through 24, just by way of reminder to kind of set us up for, uh, again, he's traveling. I just want to draw your attention to his dogged determination to uh, fulfill his ministry. That's all we're after here in these travels and the language that we're following here in verses 6 through 8. He's still at it. We're looking at him just pass from, you know, just tracking along back to Jerusalem. We're picking up a few Christians along the way, spends a little time with him. Remember, he's trying to get there before Pentecost, right? And he's a little ahead of schedule. We'll see him here take a little time again with Philip, the evangelist. But note the language up front that kind of sets the stage for him. Chapter 20, verse 22 through 24. And now behold, bound by the spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, knowing what will happen to me there. Uh, Excuse me, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. I don't know all the details, but it's going to be, there's going to be persecution. It's not going to go well for me in that regard. That said, But I do not consider my life as any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. You receive that same ministry. You have a ministry to solemnly testify of the the gospel of God, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace. You have that same ministry. Do you have a different context? Do you have a different time? Do you have a different setting? Do you have different aspects to that calling in in relation to Paul? Yes, but you have the same calling. That is your calling as well. And I encourage you to pray that as Paul Paul pursued to, to finish his course well, you too should pray that you would finish your course well. And we should pray for one another. We should pray that our life, like Paul, would be considered as no account dear to ourselves, that we might finish our course of ministry and receive from the Lord Jesus, uh, that we receive from the Lord Jesus and be able to testify solemnly of his gospel. The same is true for us. Now, Paul's returning to the lion's den, right? He's going right back to Jerusalem where he is going to get ugly. He knows. The Lord has made that clear right up front. But he's doing so in obedience. That's central. It's obedience. He's going back. This is not uh, a man that's, you know, got his head in the cloud and he's just this uh, daydreamer with just this uh, uh, no sense of reality about him. This is a sober-minded man. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He doesn't know the details. He doesn't know if he's going to die there because he's faced persecution before and he's been beaten near death, but not die. So he doesn't know he's going to die. That is kind of, it's kind of open-ended in that regard, but he knows for sure it's going to be bad. 
but be obedience trumps safety and the call of gospel ministry. Obedience trumps safety. I know that's hard for our sensitive, cushy American ears, but you better sober up. Obedience trumps safety. Now, I don't say that from a high horse. I'm as fragile as they come. We've talked about that. This is, I, I've been called to be on this side. It's my responsibility to say this and pray like you for God to help us live it out. Amen. But you better sober up. In all contexts, we are called to obedience. And Paul gives us a great picture of that. So you have a set course of ministry. I want you to understand it's set. God has set your ministry. He's called you to it. He's given you your course. It's yours. It's personalized in that regard. He's called you to himself personally, and he's granted you a ministry personally. Now it's just how you give an account. Now you just simply give an account for how you live it out. So seek power from God to fulfill your ministry. Pray for conviction. You know, there's rivalries in life, right? Conviction kind of helps us settle those rivalries. Man, uh, you know, I, I live with a county over, and I, I know I'm, I'm working here in Wilkes now, I'm ministering here in Wilkes now, and so I'm, I'm getting familiar with the context, and there's these four high schools, right? And, I, and down at the clinic, I work with these older people, man, and they still go in, and these rivalries are still there, you know? I mean, they're there, man. If you, you know, oh, oh, uh-huh. they're there. That runs deep. They can go back and they can tell me about those last-second wins that they pulled out 20 years ago against the great rival. <laughs> and there's four schools in the county. But, man, those rivalries are deep. Look. You have a grand enemy. And your enemy is happy to try to turn and divert your attention to rivalries in this, in this world, rivalries to your ministry call. This world will always present you rivalries for your dogged affection. Your rivalry will be a rival against your lordship to Christ. And they pop up all over the place. And you better spot them out. You better be able to sniff them out in a hurry. They're on every corner. This old world will call you to something other than lordship, than the lordship of Jesus Christ. It'll set up, your enemy will try to set up rivalries for you all through your Christian ministry. See them, see them a mile away and ask God to give you strength to resist them. They will come. Count the cost, dear Christian friend. Count the cost. Ask the Lord to reveal the moments of hypocrisy in your life. You know, we have them. We have moments of hypocrisy in our walk. And we don't get a take two on this. So what we do as Christians, we acknowledge them. We lay them before the Lord. We confess them. 
We ask God to help us move on and not go down that path again. There's times that we will act hypocritically against our God-given call of ministry. Make them few and far between. Confess them and beg God to give you a neighboring grace to walk in righteousness that you might fulfill your ministry calling that God has given you. Clinging to the Lordship of Jesus Christ that is central to your call. Ask the Lord to reveal them to you as you begin to fall prey to them. That being your acts of hypocrisy. Beg God for a conviction towards the Lordship of Christ because this is true of a conviction towards the Lordship of Christ. There are no, a conviction towards the Lordship of Christ has no concern or wary for consequences. The frailty of our flesh has lots of wary concerning consequences. Lordship to Jesus Christ does not have wary concerning consequences. And here, yes, I, I do have points in this sermon. So here, allow Paul to encourage you. This is just the introduction, by the way. I'm getting it. Allow Paul to encourage you. Paul had conviction, and Paul did not let circumstances dictate to him. Learn from Paul. Luke 9, 23. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, this is Christ speaking. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's the Christian call to ministry, right? God has given you a Christian ministry to fulfill. It's yours. And along with every other Christian, he has laid this calling upon your life. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, what that means in a nutshell for all Christians is you must deny yourself in order to fulfill your Christian ministry. The two cannot be separated. One must deny his or herself in order to rightly fulfill his or her Christian ministry. That's a both and. That's not an either or. It's not an option. That's a both and. If you do not deny yourself, you will constantly walk in hypocrisy to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and you will fail and walk in disobedience to your calling, to your ministry calling as a follower of Jesus Christ. This must have, that's the tough reality, right? But that's, that's the reality of all Christian life. That's the standard. That's not just for those, you know, well, those special Christians that have those special callings that we can just all kind of know. Those pioneer missionaries that are going to uh, 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 people groups in the world that have no gospel access. Yes, that is a unique calling. God blessed them. God equipped them for that, God, for that calling. God called them that calling. But your calling is no different than theirs in this regard. You must deny yourself and yield to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in order to fulfill your ministry that God has given you. So when we talked about, in verses 1 1 through 3, we talked about being purposeful in our ministry, right? God's given you a ministry. He's called you to a ministry. He's placed you in a ministry for his glory. And you're going to give an account. We're going to give an account, all of us. So I want to encourage you to be purposeful. In other words, to, to endeavor to be specific about your objectives in your ministry, what you feel that God's called you to and how to work that out day to day. Be very specific. Lay those things before the Lord. 
Why? When you see God fulfill them in your life, there's great joy there. And there's a many, there's many reasons why, but there's one. Be specific. Man, I want to reach my neighbor, Jill. God help me to reach her. Help me to have those conversations where I might interject the gospel and tell her gospel truth. And then God does that. And you have great joy. That is a very clear objective. No, I don't want to limit you. Just be specific. Go before God and be specific. And then you have specific things to pray for. And go live them out. And then you have, again, the joy of seeing them fulfilled and the joy of giving God praise for working them out in your life. Be specific. Also, verses 4 through 6, we talked about being persistent. And again, verse 20, uh, or chapter 20, verse 23, really that, that we read earlier, really reminds us of that. Uh, the Holy Spirit is solemnly testifying to Paul here in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await you, and Paul doesn't flinch. Even when you know it's not going to be pleasant. Persist. Even when it gets tough, even when the road gets rocky, even the world offers you something that, for the moment, seems more appealing. The distractions that lead you to hypocrisy in your calling, even when they come, persist. Persist. Be wise. Be diligent. And so I want to follow up in chapter 6 there on that, that language and just remind us by uh, thinking along the same line, the same vein. But here in verse 6, I want to remind us to cling to the calling. We have a calling. We have a ministry that God's given us, and we are to cling to that. So, again, we see that picture of Paul. They went aboard the ship. Paul's still going to Jerusalem. Nothing has diverted Paul. All along this arduous journey, nothing diverts Paul from the mission. And we just see that playing out in 6. They... Said their goodbyes. They prayed together at the beach, just like they had he had prior with uh, the elders there at Miletus. And, and same thing. He gets on the ship and he continues on his way to Jerusalem. He's persistent, but in doing so, we must be too persistent. But in doing so, let me encourage you by saying, cling to the calling. Know that God has called you, and cling to that reality. This is a call on your life that comes from God. You have a ministry. Now, Paul expects persecution in his particular context. He's been told about it uh, all the way through. Actually, it was prophesied early. The Holy Spirit tells Ananias, look, you know, this is my guy. This is Paul. Yes, he's a genuine Christian. You encourage him. Build him up. And I'm going to show him how much he will suffer for my name. Paul expects persecution. He expects it really as a fulfillment of prophecy. Acts chapter 9, verse 15. This is exactly where we, we find this language in Ananias. So Holy Spirit lets him know, hey, this is what, this is what Paul's ministry is going to look like. But know what? Know this. He's going to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. He's got a little unique calling there. But as his calling is lived out, it's going to cost him. 
And what Paul has to have settled in his heart and what we have to have settled in our heart is it may cost me everything. Now let me back up a little bit. It will cost you everything. But it may cost you everything when you're not exactly expecting it to cost you everything. Paul had a little prophecy up front. So, you know, he's ready for the persecution. It doesn't surprise him. You might have some surprises. You have to have it settled in your heart that it will cost me everything. And I must be ready at any time for it to cost me everything. Paul was ready. And he did. He bore the name of Christ before Gentiles, kings, and the sons and sons of Israel. And now he's staying at it. He's staying the course. He's clinging to the calling. So the Lord informs Paul of his suffering beforehand. That's pretty unique. The prophecy prepared him. He prepared him to go to Jerusalem. Now, I'll grant you, Paul had a unique calling. He had a unique calling. He had unique circumstances. But most importantly, Paul understood the sovereignty of God in his calling. And that's what I want to encourage you with this morning, to understand, lay hold of, and cling to the sovereignty of God in your calling. God has given you your ministry. It's unique to you. It is consistent with all other Christians all around the world in every generation and that it is centered on Jesus Christ and the gospel truth of his death, burial, and resurrection. But it is unique to you. It is unique to you and has come to you the sovereign hand of God. God is sovereign over your ministry calling. You cling to that calling. When it gets sideways, when it gets scary, when it gets discouraging, when it gets cloudy, you don't really understand why you're experiencing what you're experiencing and your relationship to what God is calling you to do. You cling to the reality of God being sovereign over your calling. He is sovereignly working out his will for your ministry to his glory in your life. You cling to that. And your God will see you through the circumstances. Paul understood that. He understood the sovereignty of God in relation to God's call upon his life. And we too must understand the sovereignty of God in relation to his call upon our lives. Same is true for us. God is sovereign over your ministry calling, sovereign over your ministry context. He's sovereign over the current cultural climate that you're ministering now because it's changing quickly and it makes some of you nervous. And rightly so. That's okay. You just lay that nervousness at the feet of God and you cling to the calling of him being sovereign over the context. He's sovereign over the current climate. He's sovereign over the future climate of your context of ministry. As long as you're here till he calls you home, and it's not going to matter. He's sovereign over your ministry calling. Cling to that. Cling to that. See it through. Finish well. 
pray to finish well. Don't fumble through and get distracted with this world and spend all your time, your thought, and your endeavors and just filling around with, with the tawdry ways of this world but it'll pass away. Strive to finish well. Your God will see you through. Seek to be men and women of conviction. Pray for conviction. Conviction is what produces courage. You're not going to minister well unless you have courage. If you do not have a spiritual backbone, you will not minister well. None of us will minister well in and of our own strength. We must have a God-empowered spiritual backbone in order to minister well. Oh, we'll just come. Oh, we'll just hide out. Oh, we'll just stay in our Christian corner as long as we can. Look. The light is beginning to shine on the Christian corner. You're not going to hide much longer. Those days are are soon over. We need a spiritual backbone. Conviction does that. Conviction produces courage, and courage produces faithful ministry. And that's our heart's desire, that we would minister faithfully. Obedience over comfort and safety. That's our calling. Faithful ministry. Courage. Courage to act. I remember uh, my oldest son, Josh, when he was about eight or nine. I can't remember the exact age. But we were uh, outside a Walmart parking lot. You can already tell that that's gone sideways for me already. So I had been in the store already. I'd been in the jungle. I dealt with Walmart already and, and got what I'd been sent to get. And, and, you know, I was focused. I was on the mission. So I got all that stuff. I had some things in the back seat of the car that I was trying to adjust uh, uh, for, for Josh to get in. And I told him to stand and we were loading groceries. So I still had some groceries in the buggy and I had to move something out of the back seat. And I, and I had some groceries in the, in the trunk of the car that the car was up and a couple of groceries in. Josh stand in the back. So stay right there because there's still a lot of traffic around. It's just dark, just getting dark. Stay right there at the back. I've got to do a few things in the back seat, and then we'll finish putting the groceries in, and we'll get ready to go. Come back, do a few things in the back seat. Come back around to the back of the car. Josh is standing there. The groceries are gone. I said, Josh, what happened? And he said, a man drove by in a Jeep, and he just jumped out and grabbed the groceries and, and, and took off. And I said, Josh, why didn't you say something? And, you know, he just froze. I don't know. I froze. And so I said, well, get in the cars. Describe the Jeep to me. And, and so we got in the car and we tried to take a run I said, describe the Jeep. What did the man look like? He said, well, why? I said, because we're going to track him down and talk to him about his sin for stealing. Well, needless to say, we, we did not find the man in the Jeep. And I was so irate, I drove all over the little town of Taylorsville for too long. Um... And then I had a long talk with Josh, with Josh about the courage to act. You have to act. You have to have the courage to act. That courage doesn't come from this world. That courage doesn't come from filling our minds and our thoughts and our concerns and our time with the things of this world. That courage comes from God alone. You have to act for the purpose of Christian ministry to the glory of God. And that courage comes from God alone.
but you must have the courage to act. Just as my son needed the courage to act in this fallen world, we need the courage to act in our gospel ministry. Courage comes from conviction. Pray that God would give us conviction. Let's do a quote from Alexander McLaren. If we feel that we have been bought with a price, we too, in our small spheres, shall be filled with with that ennobling passion of devoted love, which will not count our life dear if he calls us to give it up. Let us learn from Paul how to blend the utmost gentleness and tender responsiveness to, to all love with fixed determination to glorify the name. A strong will and a loving heart makes a marvelously beautiful combination and should both abide in every Christian. May that be true of us. Now I want to draw your attention to verses 7 and 8. And we thought about clinging to the call. And and again, these these coalesce, they overlap a little. I confess that. But I want you to consider the course. I'll try to find that, that that language there. Consider the course. Your ministry has a set course by a sovereign God. You give an account. You're responsible for that. You're responsible for obedience. But it has a set course. Look there with me in verse 7 and 8. And so he says, we finished our, our, our uh, voyage from Tyre. So they're just going, again, they're just tracking down the coastline. They go to another port city. Port, port city they arrive at uh, Ptolemy's. Um, so that's a, still a, 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 a very uh, notable port city in the time. And what does Paul do? He finds brothers there right away. He's good at that, isn't he? We should be good at that. He finds brothers right away. So he greets the brethren there, and he stays with them for a day, one day. And that's where we left when we came to Caesarea. And there in Caesarea, they entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with them. Again, he's just tracking his journey. But God set his course, and he set your course. So don't allow, don't allow fear and safety to overcome obedience. Now, again, it's pretty, co- pretty cool that, that Paul meets with the brethren, right? He just finds them out. And we should, we should think about that a little bit. We are brethren. And so some of that, just finding the brethren, it's part of just Paul. It's just ingrained in Paul to deny himself. And there's lots of stuff in the journey, but the first thing, he just goes to find the brethren. Why? There may be some good for it for him, of course, but he's he's not tracking that way. He's just looking to encourage them, to pray for them to spend a little time with them that he might minister to them. And likewise, when he comes, I'm sure they're thinking the same thing. Hey, we might minister to these brothers. But it's the, it's the mindset. He's looking for them. He's got one day. You know, well, we got a day, man. Maybe I could just pull up the hand and take it easy. It just doesn't think that way. His calling has not allowed him to wire himself that way. He's always looking to minister. 
And part of our ministry calling is just that. The capacity to realize that's our calling and start looking to do it. And so he finds these brethren out that he might just spend some time with them. He's got one day. Hey, I'm going to find some brothers. He's good. He's good at it. Everywhere he goes, he finds them out. I'm going to spend time with them. I'm going to be with them. I'm going to encourage them. And so there's just this responsibility that we have in our course of ministry to obey. Don't isolate yourself. Don't waste your time. Paul is the best example I know of in the New Testament. And there, there's, there's others for sure. The best example I know of in the New Testament of redeeming the time. When you just take Acts and you look from chapter 13 to the end of the book, and Paul's again center stage, and what you're looking at is a man who knows how to redeem the time. And if nothing else, we're in a culture that knows how to waste time. So we need to sharpen up and look at Paul. Paul redeems the time. Not a wasted minute. And, and Paul says, you know, don't isolate yourself. Communicate with other brothers and sisters. Encourage one another. Don't allow too busy to define your ministry. We're always too busy, aren't we? We're just too busy. Busy doing what? That's my question. Busy doing what? That's your question. You have to go home and ask yourself. Busy doing what? Because that's when, a, if you can't say amen, you got to say, ouch. Busy doing what? Man, we know how to waste time. Don't waste your time. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. You have a time on this earth as a Christian set by God. It's short. Don't waste your time. Your ability, your, your responsibility is to trust and obey. Example. Start helping us think together this way so we can pray rightly for one another. We've all had those circumstances when we, we know the Spirit of God is compelling us to share the gospel with someone. A setting is there. We know that, and yet we pause for whatever reason. That might come to our mind at that point. I want you to understand that's not denying self. When an opportunity is there, we always use that word opportunity. I don't even know how that comes into to being defined. We're just called to share. I don't know what layer of opportunity we need. I'm not sure about that. I would say maybe if someone doesn't have a gun to your head, it's probably an opportunity. If they do, it could be an opportunity. We have opportunities. But there are those moments when we know the Spirit of God is compelling us to share the gospel, and we don't. And we've all been in that boat. But what I want you to think about is because we come up for reasons why we don't. And then we just go back home and we do, and we spend our time being busy doing what? That's not denying self. You got to just, you got to file that in to your understanding of the Christian walk. That's not denying self. Part of our 
faithfulness to our walk that God has called us to must be the capacity to deny self. It doesn't work if that's not there. I've never been comfortable sharing the gospel. You talk about whether well, some brothers and sisters that are going, maybe they are some. I don't know. I don't know them. I'm not one. I'm never comfortable, ever. There's never a time that I've shared the gospel in my entire Christian life that I'm comfortable. If some are, God bless them. I am excited and ecstatic for them. I have never been comfortable. That's not the point. It's faithfulness. And in order to share the gospel, you must deny self. There's an example. Also, just our participation in ministry with one another, caring for one another, loving one another, being there to encourage one another. And men, look, yeah, I've had some time in ministry now. Men are great at this. They give me the, you know, well, uh, I need family time. Now, I would like to be more involved in that ministry, brother, but, you know, I like to, you know, put myself forth a little more, but I just don't have time for my family. Well, family time is important. That does matter. You know what happens? Their wives come up to me and my wife and say, you know, why can't you get my husband more involved? All he does is sit at the house and play on his computer or watch TV. That's not family time. That's an excuse. Guys use that to me all the time. So if I'm a little edgy, forgive me. Well, you know, brother, I just need a little more time with family. Just sitting there watching TV. Not doing anything with your family. We have to deny self. Don't use family time as an excuse, men. I've never, had a, I've never had a woman come up to me and my wife and say, you know, I need more family time. I have guys say it all the time. And I'm not calling them disingenuous. I just know that some are, uh, have a little different view of family time than their wives because they come and talk to me and my wife about it. Don't use it as an excuse. Don't isolate yourself. Don't excuse yourself. Deny yourself. That's what we all are praying that we must do. Verse 8 there, it says, they came into the port there at Caesarea, and they entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. And he stayed with them. So one of the seven, meaning who? Who are the seven? I go back, where do we pick up Philip? Because Philip's been out of the picture for a long time. That's 20 years. Philip's been out of the picture for a long time. Philip was one of the seven men set apart by the elders. Perfect. Yes, to serve tables there in Jerusalem, right? What we might think of as, or as, as first deacons ever pictured, doesn't say that there in the text, but the first kind of picture of deacons, uh, our deacon ministry, a servant ministry set apart within the church to care for the um, Gentile widows that didn't believe they were kind of getting their fair share of uh, being cared for. So this would receive Philip, and he was faithful there. I want you to see that he was faithful in that ministry. And then persecution hits. Stephen's martyr, persecutions hits, and these Christians, many of them, are dispersed all over the place. Philip goes where? Where did Philip go next? Do you remember? To Samaria. Philip goes to Samaria. Now, he's not being commissioned. He's been faithful in his role at Jerusalem. He's just fleeing persecution. So no one's commissioned. No one's him out. He's just a brother in Christ, ending up in Samaria because of persecution. What does he do there? No commission. He's not an elder. He's not an apostle. What does he do? 
He's a Christian. What does he do? He begins to share the gospel in the context that God has placed him in. And what happens? He begins to share the gospel, and it affects the whole city. I mean, there's a big ruckus. And the apostles have to be called in. We've got this uh, false music, uh, 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 this this uh, uh, magician, a false uh, making false professions of Christianity and wanting to pay Peter to to have the power of the Holy Spirit. There's all kinds of things. The whole city was turned upside down. There were many genuine followers of Jesus Christ. This one guy just shows up and because he's a Christian, starts sharing the gospel. And he had a tremendous effect there in Samaria. Very visible ministry. Now, Samaria was what? Folks that were half Jewish, half Gentile, right? So it's kind of, there's a breakout right there, right? He's the first one. So now it's, it's beyond just Jewish people. Now we've got this, we've got the Samaritan, man. And so from there, God moves him out where? Where he will see, where he'll see the Ethiopian eunuch next. That's what comes next. So he sees the Ethiopian, full-on Gentile now, right? And there he ministers to the Ethiopian eunuch, and then God calls him away. And we don't see him anymore for 20 years. He could have been point man to the Gentiles. That's what it looked like in the beginning, right? He gets first, he, gets, he nudges, he's the first one to nudge past just, uh, just bringing the gospel to the Jewish community. And then he goes all the way into the full-on Gentile world, past Samaria to enter the Gentile world, the Ethiopian eunuch. Very visible ministry. And now we just, and then nothing. And God, according to his sovereign will, takes Philip and puts him in a place of obscurity. We don't even hear about for 20 years. Nobody sees him for 20 years, except in that local small context where there's not a lot of big visible uh, noise concerning the gospel. And Paul is the point man to the Gentile world in a very visible, big, noticeable ministry. Who, by the way, was the main man persecuting uh, uh, Christians and having Stephen executed that led to the pers- the wider spread of the persecution that drove Philip into Samaria, where he just being a faithful Christian began to share the gospel and the place exploded with conversions and gospel ministry. Now that guy is back in that obscure ministry. A couple of things of application. He was faithful as a what we would call a servant there in the original church, and God gave him a greater ministry in Samaria. And then God gave him, he was faithful then, God gave him an even greater ministry to the Ethiopian eunuch in, in the sense that that was the first full-on Gentile encounter with the gospel, and, and, and he was the man. So faithful and little, God grants you more. Simple reality of the Christian life. Hold on to that. Yet he brings them back to an obscure ministry. At least in that context, we're looking at it here in Scripture, so it's not that obscure because God's preserved it for us. And he probably very well was a, was a leading figure and bringing Luke along and writing and giving the details and the history of Acts 
and the Spirit of God uh, probably used him as a person that was helpful to Luke as Luke penned all of this. So he comes back around and we see him, so he's not so obscure after all. But his ministry was, in his context, in his time for 20 years, it was very obscure. Paul was very visible. Now they come back and there's no animosity. There's no hostility. There's no help over tension. There's joy. There's happiness. This man opens his home to Paul and his, and his comrades. And they all come and they stay at Philip's house. But Philip had a, again, relatively obscure ministry. They're in Caesarea. But obscure yet not what? Not docile, not lackluster, not put on the shelf and sitting around being idle. No. What's he called there? An evangelist. He's Philip the Evangelist. Now, he's not just Philip the Evangelist when he's on center stage. He's Philip the Evangelist when his ministry is small and obscure in an area that's not exploding with visible gospel ministry. He's still faithful. He's Philip the faithful evangelist. That's how they know him as Philip the evangelist. There in Samaria, first one to break out with all the attention, and then also in Caesarea, where little is seen and little is heard about in the outside world concerning the gospel message. Faithful. And all of what God had called him to do in every place God had appointed him. And now the two men are brought back together by the sovereignty of God 20 years later. Point man and ultimately the point man. First and then ultimately point man. Persecutor, persecuted. Brought together in the bond of Christ. And now there's love and fellowship and peace and union. And he takes Paul and his, and his comrades in his house and they fellowship together it's a beautiful reality of the work of god the mercy of god and the kindness of god in saving sinners so faithful and small ministry gives larger ministry opportunities okay make note of that be diligent be diligent in your Ministry field, wherever God's called you, be diligent. It's faithfulness. It's not the visibility of your context. It's your faithfulness to your calling. Learn from Philip. Be diligent, even in what may seem as obscure work. Toil for your master. He's called you somewhere. He's placed you and given you a ministry context in your life. And your obedience is what is central. Your obedience is what he's concerned with. Not your context, not the visibility of it, not the changing nature of it in terms of, uh, of locale, but your obedience. Toil for your master. Labor out of a pure heart that denies self. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for these few verses here that just track Paul's journey, but we see the character of the man lived out in practical every our day-to-day realities of continuing on his journey, diligent, faithful, determined to see his ministry to the end. We ask that that would be true of us as well. 
we thank you that in principle we see even in uh, the smallest of, of texts um, that you're calling on our lives as sovereign. You're calling on our ministry as sovereign. I pray that you would uh, help us to lay hold of that, to trust you. I pray you would help us to understand that part of our calling is design self. We have no capacity to do so. In our own strength, we must have your grace that we may deny self, that we might in turn minister faithfully. Hear our hearts. We desire to be faithful servants. We desire to be men and women of conviction that gives us gospel courage that we might finish well and know that our lives have been obedient and honoring to you. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.